Welcome to the Martins Kirk Podcast, a publication of sermons and lessons from Trinity Reformed Church of Martinsburg. Trinity Reformed exists to declare the victory of Jesus Christ through worship and practice to the ends of the earth. To learn more about our congregation, visit martinskirk.com. Good morning, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the light of the world, your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray as we meditate on this passage in John chapter 3, the story of Nicodemus, that the darkness of our minds will be cleared and the light of Christ will shine in our lives and be an example to those around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, Elder Peter read our sermon passage this morning, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Um, So you're welcome to follow along if you want to open your Bibles to that particular passage. But this morning I want to talk about Nicodemus in this particular story. And there's a reason why I want you to think about this image as we go through this passage. There's a reason why we bury the dead. Burial reflects blindness. It reflects inactivity. Burial to entomb is to resist the light. You can imagine what this is like if you've ever slept in a completely dark room before. You go to close the door at night and the hallway lights uh, slowly dissipate as the door closes. The light fades and there's nothing. And you can almost hear this kind of darkness when you see no light in the room at all. There's a a deafening effect to this darkness. There's a finality to darkness. And the Gospel of John is full of this imagery, light and dark. And light to John is directly linked with life, with life. And we see that in John chapter 1. The Gospel of John is full of this imagery. If someone is in the dark, if someone is in the dark, they are dead. But if someone is able to see, they are alive. This is the kind of theme that John has throughout his gospel. Only light is not only associated with life to John. Life is not the only association with light. It is also associated with understanding, with wisdom. With wisdom. So kids, listen up. You know those cartoons where you see the, the light bulb go over the character's head when they get an idea? That, that light bulb that shines and they finally understand something or that eureka moment? Well, that concept actually comes from the Bible. That concept comes from the Bible. Because Jesus is the light to our minds. When we, when we see Jesus, we finally understand. We finally get it. We finally know what's going on. The light turns on, and we're no longer in the dark. So light is associated with life, and it's associated with wisdom. Now conversely, darkness. Darkness is associated with death and ignorance. John, throughout his gospel, reminds us of this truth. In the first chapter of John, in the prologue of John, the first 18 verses, we see this darkness and light dichotomy. So John, is an, he's not writing your average gospel here. Usually gospels open up with a narrative of Jesus' birth, in his early childhood even, in Luke. But in John, 
He starts at the very beginning of all time. He starts before time begins. He calls back to the creation of the world. So instead of recounting the moment that God created the light on the first day, John lets us know who that light resembles, who that light represents. Jesus is the light of the world. His glory blazes in the darkness of this deformed world affected by sin. But darkness cannot hold back light. We all know this. We all know this. Our earthly light reflects this quality. If you turn a light bulb on in a room that's completely dark, the darkness scatters. There is no darkness left. So light is a reflection of Jesus, our Lord. And this light, John says, is the light of men. The light of men. So Jesus is the light that makes blind men see and makes the ignorant know, makes the ignorant understand. But this light was not understood by the darkness. The darkness doesn't understand this light. And John uses these themes to describe the ignorance and deadness of our sin-ridden world. And he says that Jesus is the answer to this dilemma. And the story of Nicodemus is no different. The story of Nicodemus uses this imagery to prove not only the ignorance and unfaithfulness of the first generation, or the first century, I should say, but the state of all men apart from Jesus Christ. So he uses this imagery not to focus just on the ignorance and unfaithfulness of the first century, but the state of all men apart from Jesus. And before we get to Nicodemus this morning, before we get to who he was, and the various fun theological points we'll be able to cover in this narrative, we have to acknowledge the structure of the tale. So Nicodemus comes with an honest question to a rather controversial teacher, to Jesus. And this teacher ignores the question, seemingly, and goes straight for the heart of what Nicodemus is there for. He goes straight to the heart of the visit. And he quickly, quickly the discussion turns from a sort of back and forth to a monologue. The questions of Nicodemus seem to get shorter and shorter, and Jesus talking more and more. And Jesus' answer, his answers do not seem uh, to get any clearer to Nicodemus. They seem to be getting weirder and weirder to him. One moment we're talking about the kingdom of God and how one can see it. The next moment, about being born again. And then we're discussing Moses and a serpent that he lifted up in the wilderness. It doesn't seem like there's any coherence to the progression of this discussion. But there most certainly is. Jesus is answering the question that Nicodemus really needed to know. He needed to know the answer to the question, how can one see the kingdom of God? So Nicodemus is in darkness, and Jesus is his light. So let's start at the beginning then. Who is Nicodemus? So we see in, in verse 1 and 2, who is Nicodemus? He was a ruler in Israel, John says, a ruler. And Jesus later in this passage calls him the teacher, which in this context referred to a collective teacher. He's not saying that Nicodemus is the only teacher in Israel. He's a part of the collective teacher of Israel. Meaning Nicodemus was a part of the teachers and the rulers of that time. 
Later in John chapter 7, Nicodemus is revealed to be a part of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Now these were the elders of Israel in charge of the teaching and judicial acts of Israel. So this means that Nicodemus was not just a normal teacher. He wasn't just a rabbi in Jerusalem. Nicodemus was high in the chain of command. He wasn't a nobody. And this probably reveals to us the reason why Nicodemus actually approached Jesus at night. He didn't want, to see, he didn't want his colleagues to see him speaking to this new rabbi in Jerusalem. Again, this darkness theme comes up in John's Gospel, and it overshadows the whole story in chapter 3. And the reason why this darkness is important in this narrative is because of the blindness of Nicodemus. As a ruler in Israel, he represented Israel covenantally. He represented Israel covenantally. This means that the state of the Sanhedrin, the state of Nicodemus, represented the state of the nation as a whole. So Nicodemus being shrouded in darkness under the cover of night shows that Israel has been blinded in ignorance and sin over the course of these centuries. Israel's in a right state, one might say. They're unable to comprehend the fulfillment of the law and the prophets if he was sitting in front of them, speaking to them. And that's the point that we see of the darkness in, in Nicodemus' story. And this darkness is shown in the response Nicodemus gives to Jesus. When Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How does Nicodemus respond? Nicodemus responds in carnal terms. How can I go back into my mom's womb? How, how is that possible? How is it possible to be put back into my mother's womb? So in the darkness of his understanding, Nicodemus is only thinking in shadows. He's only thinking in shadows. What do you think natural birth really points to? What do you think it points to? He's, thinking, he's not thinking high enough. That's the point. Nicodemus isn't thinking heavenly. And when Jesus explains what he means by a second, birth, a second birth, Nicodemus again responds without understanding. How can these things be, he says. He wants more specifics. He wants Jesus to respond with more specificity. But Jesus responds, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? In other words... Nicodemus has had the words that Jesus is speaking this whole time written down, and he's taught them for years and years in Jerusalem. And he's lived his whole life with these words on his tongue, and yet he doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. If the teacher is ignorant, think of the people under his care. That's Jesus' point. So this darkness that covers the whole conversation is rather important in our understanding of the state of Israel. She was effectively dead. She was so far from the light that she needed to be reborn. She needed to be born again. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be born again? And we have a lot of, we have a lot of people who have seen a lot of births in our congregation. And thanks to God for that. We are thankfully very familiar with this process. 
The child is in the womb. It's very simple. The child's in the womb. And then through a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of work by the mother, the child is brought into the world. It's very simple. It seems rather obvious. But the creator of this world, our Lord and Savior, wants us to see the gospel in every aspect of our life. He wants us to see him in his work, especially his work in us. So when we think of birth, we should be thinking of darkness to light. We should be thinking of sleep or a deadness to life and light in the world. Our spiritual rebirth is like this. It's like this. So we go from darkness of mind, dead in sin, to the light of the new creation. We were blind, but now we see. This is our spiritual rebirth. And Jesus goes on to be very specific about what this rebirth entails. It involves water and spirit. Now, this passage is very uncomfortable for many American Christians, including me about five years ago. We like to sort of, uh, we, we like to mutter or whisper the water part when we, when we read this passage to ourselves. And we want to skip straight to the Spirit. We want to skip straight to the Spirit. But this is a spiritual rebirth, we may say. Why would God use something like water in order to give us new life, new spiritual life? Well, let's turn to the birth of man and mankind in Genesis chapter 2 for the answer. Genesis 2, verse 6 through 7 says this, A mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The word of the Lord. So the Lord uses physical Elements, physical means to make man. He uses water and dirt. And he also uses his breath, his spirit. It's the same word for spirit in Hebrew. So he uses water, he uses dirt, and then he uses his spirit. And Israel, when she passed through the Red Sea, was sprinkled with water, and that's in Psalm chapter 77, and guided by the spirit. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the Lord tells Israel that he will sprinkle clean water on her. He will sprinkle clean water on her and put a new spirit within her. On the cross, Christ's side poured out water after he gave up his spirit for us. At Pentecost, we see this theme come to reality, come to fulfillment. When the church receives the spirit of God and is baptized with water... So baptism in the New Covenant is a sign of the new birth we have in Christ. Water and Spirit. And this birth that we must partake of comes, comes from where? It comes from above. That's another reason why we sprinkle here at Trinity. There's a theme throughout the Scriptures. This grace comes from above. It comes from the Spirit in heaven. And Jesus says that this Spirit blows where He wills. Verse 8 in John chapter 3. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now pay close attention to this language that Jesus is using here. Pay close attention. We have been talking about 
how one can see the kingdom of God. And we're in the darkness of night. Nicodemus's mind has been darkened. And Jesus says, you hear the sound of the Spirit, but cannot tell where He comes from and where He goes. Jesus is saying that the Spirit comes, He comes to us in our blindness, and He opens our eyes to the light of Christ. So to be born is to be, is to be received into light and into life. Your sight and life are in Christ Jesus. And this isn't necessarily a commentary on the time frame, on the time frame of God's Spirit being given to you, but the fact that you were blind and you didn't see it coming. You can hear the Spirit coming. You can hear the Word of God. You can hear Christ, but you can't see it coming. You were blind, but now you see. This is how one is born again. And Nicodemus then asks, how can these things be? And Jesus replies with a rather odd, rather odd saying. He says, We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Now, if you'll notice in a lot of your translations, the we's and the ours are capitalized because he's speaking of God. He's speaking of himself. The we's and ours here is referring to Christ and his spirit. He and the Spirit bear witness to this truth. He and the Spirit bear witness. And Nicodemus, the ruler and judge in Israel, does not receive it. Now under the law, two or three witnesses are required to pass a judgment. And of course, God meets that requirement in His very nature. I mean, He made the law. He is the two and three witnesses in Himself. It wouldn't matter to Nicodemus, though, because Jesus pointedly states the obvious. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, if he hadn't accepted the earthly things that he was saying, he wouldn't accept the heavenly things. So it wouldn't matter if he had witnesses or not. Nicodemus isn't going to accept it. No one has or can ascend to heaven apart from Jesus. Rather, no one of his own will or strength can attain heaven or comprehend the heavenly things, only Jesus. And then the conversation takes quite the turn. Jesus, in talking about ascent into the heavenly places and understanding of heavenly things, mentions Moses and the serpent and relates it to Jesus' future crucifixion. Now this is interesting, because elsewhere in the New Testament, Philippians 2 for example, the cross is often talked about in terms of going down, and being humbled, and going into the depths, being brought low. But John, throughout his gospel, takes us for a, a turn on this, on this act of the crucifixion. John sheds a new light on the cross. The cross is an act of being lifted up, not being brought low being lifted up. For John, the cross is not the end of Christ's life, but the beginning step in Christ's exaltation. And in the story of Moses and the serpent, Moses lifts up this shining, fiery, bronze serpent on a pole, and everyone looks upon it in faith and are healed. 
So it is with Christ on the cross. The light of men shining in exaltation as he is lifted up before the world, before Jew and Greek alike. And everyone who looks on him and believes will be saved. So the descent of death for John is the beginning of exaltation. It's the beginning of glory. And in order to be born anew, our old man must die. We must be crucified with Christ. And this is the beginning of us being lifted up with Him. This is what the baptism of water and spirit shows us. This is why, even though baptism is a punctiliar event, meaning it only happens once in our life, we can look back on it and we can remember what Christ has done for us. We can remember our death. And in that remembrance and in that faith, we can be exalted with Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 says, Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now the glory of the Father is the Spirit. So here we have water and Spirit in Romans 6, 4, describing our new birth as a death as a death. And if we have been buried with Him, we also will walk in newness of life with Him. The beginning of our life begins in death. And Jesus knew this from the very start. He knew that He must take on the sins of the world in Himself and be lifted up before the world. He knew that He would become that serpent for the sake of our salvation and healing. He knew this. And he knew all of this and did all of this. Why? Because God so loved the world. Because God so loved the world. Because God so loved you, Christian, that he gave himself for you so that you too can see the kingdom of heaven. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, and he has brought you into his marvelous light and life. And He didn't bring you to the salvation through earthly war or through conquest. He didn't bring you through political gain. He didn't bring you to the salvation through anything earthly. He didn't do it by winning you over with lofty speeches or arguments. He brought you into His salvation through water and spirit, through death and rebirth. He brought you into His kingdom through humble means. Now, we do, know, we do not know exactly what happened to Nicodemus or whether he truly came to faith in Christ. There's many uh, allusions to this in Nicodemus' Acts and later in John. We do know that he defends Christ against the rest of the Sanhedrin in John chapter 7. Ironically enough, on the account of needing witnesses. Needing witnesses. So he learned his lesson there. And we know that he provided many spices for the burial of Jesus in John chapter 19. So Nicodemus seemed to admire our Lord at least, even in his death. But the point of this passage in John chapter 3 is that Christ didn't remain dead. He is reborn in the resurrection on the third day. Our Lord took on the sins of the world. He became sin. He became a serpent on our behalf. So that you, so that us, 
we all would be raised with him in the glory of his resurrection. And in our rebirth, we are given eyes to see the glory of the kingdom of God. That is, to see Christ himself for who he really is. Now, do you see the glory of the kingdom? Do you see this kingdom? Quit searching for earthly or political answers like Nicodemus. And set your eyes on things above. Know that the path to glory is not through the almighty dollar. It's not through likes on social media. It's not through anything regarding a political movement. The path to glory starts with the cross of Christ. Your rebirth is a one-time event. But it is an event that you can participate in daily through repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. So Lord willing, you will have many deaths and many rebirths over the course of your life. Lord willing, through these events in your life, the shadow of sin and shame will turn lighter and lighter with the glory of Christ. And the season of Lent is a season of the cross. And you may feel like every season seems to be Lent. You may feel shame and guilt for your sins. The burden of that guilt on your shoulders. So this is my charge to you. If you feel this way, if you feel the weight and guilt of sin on your shoulders, you are no longer dead. So do not mourn your deadness at your empty tomb. Do not mourn your deadness at your empty tomb. Turn and look to Christ in the garden of your grave. He's standing right there. He's standing right there. Look to your glorious Savior who was and is and is to come. And because Christ Jesus was before all worlds, His love for you is not an earthly love that fades, but an everlasting love rooted not in, not in us, not in our doing, but in His very nature. So look to your Christ on that tree blazing with the glory of heaven. Look to Him and believe. The cross you see is the first step to life and life abundantly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.